So about 10 years ago, a film came out. It's set in uh, Mississippi in the early 1960s. And it follows a community of black maids who serve at uh, in upper white middle class communities. And it was called The Help. Any of you ever see it? Viola Davis and, and others in that film. And I just want to show you a sampling of a couple of instances in which Abilene, who's played Viola Davis, demonstrates her presence in that community to someone in that community that even their own mother had kind of overlooked. You is kind, you is small, you is important. Baby, you need to get the back to bed. Please don't leave. I got to, baby. I am so sorry. Are you going to give another little girl? No, that's not the reason. I don't want to leave you. But it's time for me to retire. You're my last little girl. No! Baby, baby, I need you to remember everything I told you, okay? Okay. You remember what I told you? You were kind, you were smart, you were important. That's right, baby girl. She was there more than just to wash dishes or fold clothes. In the course of her being of help, she took on a posture in herself to do what even that child's biological mother wouldn't do. And that was to hold that child's face in her hands and to speak to the innermost parts of that child's very being. She was being maternal to this child who was not her own and that's only two instances in which she demonstrates that kind of posture of love and of care and of kindness um, by now some of you are aware of what today is in this country at which point some of you fathers are going oh my gosh what and in the midst of your panic if you get up during the service i understand but on a day like today, in the way this country and others do remind ourselves of things, there's some things we have to take into account. Look, um, we all have a mother. It's true of every one of you. It's true of me. Um, our mothers uh, can make us or break us. And, and that is also true of fathers. We, we may, the first thing that might come to our minds when we think of our mothers may be something we cherish them. And, and for others, that first thought would be something we wish that we could have. And, and for others, it might be somewhere in between. Motherhood represents something that we are either full of pride over or full of heartbreak. Uh, but this is also true, that when it comes to mothers, uh, there's more than one kind. Uh, there are biological mothers. There are also spiritual mothers. 
somebody asks Jesus, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. And he goes, who, who are my mother and brothers? They are, they are the ones that who do the will of God. And, and even Jesus on his cross, he's, he's dying. And one of the things that he has to say, he looks at his mother Mary and he, and he says, behold, Peter, your son. And to Peter, he says, behold, your mother. Motherhood is far more expansive than perhaps we even think. And Abilene certainly is a demonstration of that demonstrating the kind of posture of motherhood to somebody that's not even a rolling in child. Now, why, why would I bring all this up today? This is, what I'm about to do is not a Mother's Day sermon per se. But mothers are going to point to its focus. And what I mean by that is this. Our primordial mother, Eve, she enters the storyline in the midst of a little bit of a crisis. It is said of Adam, he had many things, but he, he, he lacked help. He lacked a real help, and help not in the way of a maid, not in the way of a servant. If anything, it's, it's sort of as one translator put it, he was in need of an indispensable companion. And the word there in the Hebrew to refer to what he was in need of, which Eve supplied, is the Hebrew word ezer which plainly translated as just the word help, but, but lest we reduce it to something rather pragmatic or merely functional, the word there to refer to who Eve would be to Adam is precisely the same word that is ascribed to no less than the Lord. He is the one who is Ezer unto Israel. He is the one who is Ezer to the whole world. And so what we want to do this morning Let's take a look at a one text of Scripture from the Psalms. We're going to take a slight break from 1 Corinthians 15 this week. We're going to look at that Psalm in which God is spoken of as our help. And what we want to do is ask ourselves three questions. What, what is that help? Why trust in that help? And the most important question is how? Because it's not lost on me that any one of you or any number of us, if not all of us in this room, come into this question with, Oh, I want to really believe that he's of help, but my own experience, my storyline, or those of others gives me pause. This world, this text, will, is out to encourage us, but it's also going to challenge us. And so we need to wrestle with it. So I wonder if you might stand and hear Psalm 121. Our central text for today comes from Psalm 121, 1 through 8. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will protect your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Just to orient us to this psalm a little bit, Psalm 121 is part of a collection of psalms towards the end of the Psalter from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. You might notice in your Bibles that each one has a superscription that's spoken of 
the songs of ascent. A-S-C-E-N-T, they're ascending. Why? Because it sounds like, from what we understand of the use of these psalms, these are the psalms that Israel would sing as they were ascending to one of the three festivals in Jerusalem that were held annually. And so, if you've ever been part of a military platoon, when they're out marching and preparing, you hear them sometimes chanting, or when when if you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout and you went to camp out, you did hikes, and every once in a while you just start singing, not just to pass the time, but that would bind you together and remind you of things that were wonderful or beautiful or humorous. Those were songs, and, and they were more than just melodies. They were something else. That's what these psalms are. They were songs for a community to remind themselves of things that were true of them. And this psalm is firmly within that tradition. That's the setting. And we're not exactly sure of the precise setting in which each of these psalms found themselves. If anything, this psalm sounds more like what they would do on their way out of Jerusalem, on their way to a journey, and any number of things that they might encounter. But nevertheless, it is a song that they would sing. What's going on here feels a little like a dialogue. And whether it's a dialogue within one person or kind of like a call and response that you're accustomed to when you hear Negro spirituals, somebody asks a question, somebody responds. And that question is everybody's question. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now the reference there to hills, it's, it's a little ambiguous. Sometimes if you're looking to the hills, it's, it's kind of like Aragorn looking for somebody to come over the the ridge and help them in the Battle of Helm's Deep. And, and here comes Gandalf down the road with all of the riders of Rohan. And that's, that's help. Whoever has the high ground can be of help. But sometimes also that which occupied the hills were, were the brigands, the bandits that were lying and waiting to come after you. And so we're not exactly sure whatever this psalmist meant by, I lift my eyes to the hills. But there is one question in which we have certainty, and that is the question that he asks himself. Where does my help come from? That's everybody's question. That's your question. That's my question. We all need it. The question confirms the need. Help is not optional. Now, we might create it for ourselves or think that we can, but at some point, we're all going to need help. And sometimes we need it more often than we ever imagined. This help of which they're inquiring in this psalm, of which they're seeking through the substance of it, in which they're now singing. The question is, where is it found? And newsflash, they would say that this hope, this help is found in the Lord. Now, why him? That's our next point. Stand by, we're almost there. Why him? Six times, if you were listening carefully, you heard one other word besides help. You heard the word help twice. But six other times you heard another word, and it was the word keep. He is your keeper. He will keep you. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain has just murdered Abel, and Adam asks, where is your brother? And what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? You ever see East of Eden? They, they change the names a little bit. It's, it's Cal and Aaron, and, and Cal has just murdered his brother, murdered his brother Aaron, and, and Cal was swinging on a swing and his father comes out where's Aaron and he goes I'm not my brother's keeper in that sense you find the opposite of what a keeper is Cain is a murderer 
A keeper is one who exercises protective, watchful care. It's what Abilene was for that little girl. It's what we're all seeking in this life. To find a little watchful care from everything that might afflict us. But the question is this. Why should we trust in that care? Because I know, and you know, that as soon as I say to you, God is full of protectful, watchful care, there is a part of you that might want to rise up a little bit and go, really? Because I can think of any number of moments in my life where I felt like, if that's care, I'd like to send it back. It's half-baked. So I hear that. And I'm going to get to that question, because it's my question too. But for now, let's do the psalmist a little honor and just take him on his terms for just a moment, okay? Because the second question we have to ask is, why does he say we should trust in that kind of watchful, protective care? He gives us three reasons. And the first reason is this, that the kind of help that is watchful and protective that comes from God is, first of all, from a place of competence. It's from a place of competence. Because it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And what he's implying is, if you're looking for help, it's best to look for help from somebody that kind of has a lay of the land. You want somebody that has a little seasoned wisdom. Well, in this case, we're talking about the author of the land. The one who is responsible for the existence of the land. And so we go to him because we believe that he understands things in ways that others do not. From that competence, we discover that he has a whole reason, a whole range of reasons that we would follow him. Look, if the fact that there are quasars and dark matter and nebulae and whole galaxies, that's one thing. But then just drill down into the smallest places. The fact that there are metatarsals and, and mitochondria, and as we said a few weeks ago, there are these things called muons, subatomic particles. Look, that those things even exist and that there's been time for them to develop, that's a marvel. I don't care if you believe in God or not, that's a marvel. And, and friends, marveling is just one step away from worshiping. So if you want to just consider an argument for why God might in fact have a way of being protective and why you might trust it, there is a, from a place of competence of what he understands, of what he's set into motion and holds together by the word of his power, there's competence there. But that, but that competence does not extend just to the physical realm. If you want to just think of it in terms of the ethical realm, of guidance. When he says there in verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. That the kind of help that God offers is a help of wisdom, of guidance. He, he gives us, if you will, kind of guardrails. Here's life. Find it here. Stay here. You'll keep your feet or you'll know what's coming in order not to be whisked off your feet and to be seduced by things that are not worthy of your time or your attention. Look, do your little own little thought experiment this afternoon on this Sabbath day. Imagine 
just for a few minutes, how would your life be different if you just let the Ten Commandments be the controlling principle of every single thing you did? Imagine how your life would be different if that was operative. Imagine for a moment if you just took the Sermon on the Mount and let that be the one thing that guided every single thought, feeling, and action that you committed in your life. Your life, my life, would be different. What you do with your words and your worries and your bodies and your anger and your goods and your promises, if that were controlling, man, different world, and your life would have been protected in a lot more ways if you had just walked in that way. If I had just walked in that way, the reason we trust him is because that help is coming from a place of confidence. That's the first reason. The second reason is that this help is both grand and at the same time granular. And, and where I get that is when he says, he is maker of heaven and earth, he will not let your be foot be moved. He will keep you. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When it says there that he keeps Israel, then what he's saying is that the help that he offers is for everybody. There is no exclusion for that. He helps a whole nation. It, it operates at a grand scale. And yet, in the same way that your mother, if you were fortunate, could pick you out of a crowd and know exactly how to find you and maybe know exactly what to say in the moment if you were fortunate. That is how the Lord works. That you are not lost in a crowd. That he works at a grand scale, but also at a very granular scale. At a very personal scale, he knows what to say and when to say it and how. He knows how to take your face in your hands and say, you have a dignity you know not of and a worth that I confirm to you by the fact that I made you and I will die for you. This help, it is granular and it comes to us in a very individual way. And when he says that he does not slumber, it means that this help that is both grand and granular never wearies. Now I know there is part of you that from your own story or your own experience or your intuition where you might think to yourself, I think maybe God was sleeping in that moment. And I hear you. And your patience will not go unrewarded. But there's a third reason that this psalmist is offering us about why we trust in this help. And that third reason is this. This help is without limit as to its scope. The Lord is your keeper, he says in verse 4. Full stop. No qualifications. The Lord is your keeper. He is your protector, period. No qualifications. There are not some things he has no interest in. There are not some season which he is busy elsewhere. My mother passed away 35 years ago this fall. And what limited memory I have of her up until the age of 15 when she died, there was no part of her that was uninterested in any part of me. There was no season in which she would just sort of say, forget it, I'm not really interested in what you have to do or what you are thinking. Committed 
She gestured in his direction. She pointed me to the way that God is. There was no limit to the scope of her concern or the nature in which she exerted that for the extent of the time that I had with her. That's what is true of the Father. There is no limits to his work. And that's why he will say, the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Whatever threats are around you, whether you can see them or whether they are unseen, for whatever might afflict you in full open season or what frightens you in the middle of the night, there is no limit to his scope of his concern, whether it's your aspirations or your disappointments, whether it's your triumphs or your failures, whether it's your being born or whether it is your dying. What this psalmist is saying is, he is there. There's no limit to his scope. There's a competence there's a grandness and granularity to that help. And there's no limit to its scope. And that all sounds wonderful. And something that we would all like not only to believe, but to rest in. And yet, I know and you know that it's hard. Um, look, I, I don't mean to be crass. But you know the Bob Marley song, Everything's Gonna Be Alright? Right? now. <laughs> Now, okay, Bob Marley had certain medicinal treatments that shall not be named to en enhance his optimism. Okay, I know that, you know that. He'd been through his world, he'd been through his experiences, and yet he finds a way to write a song like that, and, and we find a way to sing it. And somehow we still do. Why? Do we just want to? In spite of everything? Why, why are we able to find the will, why do we not feel like we're betraying something existentially profound by singing that song, and yet maybe we have a problem with this one? I, I want to offer to you reasons why I, I think we don't have to flinch when we hear Psalm 121. And I, I'll be honest, when I first hear Psalm 121, I go, hey, but what, but, but what about? You might flinch too. And that's why I meditated on this this week. I I think I'm going to give you three reasons why I think you can inch back to the possibility of trusting that this is good and it's worthy not only to be heard but to be sung. Why? Let me give you one. One, I, I think you and I need to reconsider maybe the assumptions that we bring to this passage or to its author. Uh, our first instinct is to think that this psalmist is like a 20-something that just graduated from seminary and has everything to say to you about why we should praise the Lord. And those of us who are almost 50 would go, oh, oh, friend, it, it, man, it, it hasn't even begun to snow for you yet. And we get that, and we think that. But friends, look, the voice of which he speaks is from an assembly of voices. And that assembly of voices from which this voice originates is not unacquainted with struggle. It is not unacquainted with suffering. Israel was enslaved for 400 years. Israel was exiled for at least 75 years to a world not its own and mostly for its own disobedience. 
this people do of struggle, and yet they were able to speak of trust from a place of struggle. And so lest we think that this is sort of a shiny, you know, wet behind the ears voice speaking to us in Psalm 121, in Psalm 120, back up, back up one Psalm. It says in Psalm 120, verse 1, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Fast forward 10 Psalms to Psalm 130 and it says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This assembly of voices is not unacquainted with suffering. And so we better not ascribe to this psalmist an incredulity that we don't find any warrant for. He speaks from an assembly of voices that was able to learn how to trust from a place of struggle. So maybe we, we can too. Which, which gets me to the second thing I think we need to consider when it comes to interpreting Psalm 121. And I think not only do we need to reconsider our assumptions about its author, we also need to reconsider what kind of help is being offered here. Now bear with me on this one. In the last 14 months, all sorts of words have entered our vocabulary. You and I will never hear the words quarantine lockdown, mask, pandemic, variant, we will never hear those words the same again. They will make us shudder or snicker or somewhere in between. Those words have entered our vocabulary and we've got them. But there's another set of words that have entered our vocabulary at the same time. It's some words that offer a contrast. There is something called sterilizing immunity and protective immunity. Sterilizing immunity comes from applications in which it's almost like it's equipping you with armor. It, it blocks infection from the beginning. There is no infection. It's, it's like a wall around you, a shield. That's what we call sterilizing immunity. Protective immunity is something that works for your defense, works on your behalf, but fights with you in the midst of the fight to mitigate some of the severity of the fight. That's protective immunity. Some applications offer sterilizing immunity. Some applications offer protective immunity. So which is Psalm 121 speaking about? You might be tempted to think he's talking about the Lord as sterilizing immunity. You walk around with this you know, giant bubble around you all the time. Nothing happens. You're impervious. You're, you're rock solid. I think, though, what Psalm 121 is talking about is something more like protective immunity. He is there. He is working. He's out to protect, but in the middle of it, to mitigate some of the severity of it. And that's why I think when we talk about his help, at times it's appropriate to think of God as helping us to protect us from harm. Like I said, Earlier, if, if you and I just walk in his way, if we just do as he says, that is its own form of protection. That keeps certain things out or can that would otherwise come in if we didn't listen. That's protection. He protects us from that harm. But friends, at the same time, there's also a protection in the middle of it. Cover to cover from Scripture, people fall into trouble. And God is there in the trouble. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. 
God is there in the midst of the struggle. Daniel is exiled, carted off to another country, conscripted to serve in the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar, and God is there in the struggle. The apostle Paul, commissioned to go preach, he lands in a jail, and more than often, and you might think that he thinks to himself, well, I guess the Lord dropped the ball. But the God is there in the struggle. Jesus himself shows up at the synagogue, offers his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. They invite him to come talk. He does. By the time they're done, they want to throw him off a cliff. Not a great day. But somehow he eludes their grasp and he gets his way out. That's care in the struggle. There's freedom from it. There's care in it. Brothers and sisters, there's also care through it. And by that I mean this. Sometimes the kind of real good outcome and benefit that we get only comes when we bottom out. And it's not to say that God was sort of, I'm not helping, I'm not doing anything, I'm going to let you just sort of suffer forever because I don't like you. It's not that. I will let you come to your wit's end because apparently that is the only thing that will break through. That kind of care is not from harm or even in harm. It's care to lead you through it. So yeah, I, I know when you first read Psalm 121, you might think it's like, he, he says, nothing will ever bad will ever happen to me. That's not what I think he's talking about. He's talking about something more like a protective immunity. But even as I say about care from and, and care in and care through, I, I know there's still one other category. And it's the care, or rather there's a situation of harm in which the wounds become scars. The scars you know because your body keeps score and your life is changed forever. And you may still be wondering this day, so what, what was the point of that? That the harm that's come to me, the abuse that's come to me, the, the pain and the tragedy, the way that I'm changed forever, like... Where's the care there? And it's, it's this point where I have to say there's a third thing we have to do. Not just reconsider our assumptions about the author. Not just reconsider our assumptions about the nature of the care. But we also have to see this psalm through the storyline and the lenses of Jesus. Because when you let Jesus come into the storyline, and when you let Jesus speak this psalm to you, it puts the conversation in a whole different frame. Because when Jesus does that, this is Jesus' prayer book. He knows these psalms. He speaks these psalms. He sings these psalms. And when you hear it through Jesus' words, you know this. He walked into harm. He confronted harm. Evil was arrayed against him. And yet he trusted Days prior to his arrest, he considers Jerusalem from afar, and like a, like a mother hen, he compares himself. And he says there in Matthew 23, if we have that, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. 
He came to offer them a care that would show them what it meant to be a neighbor. And a kind of care that through his dying would make them his children. And through his rising would remind them that they have been offered a care that will keep them even in and beyond their death. That's how you have to hear this psalm through the mouth of Jesus. If he will do that, then this is true. Look, that does not erase the abuse you've been through. It is not by way of implication to say to you, just suck it up when you thought he abandoned you. Neither of those things are true. But what is true is this. If that is true of Jesus, then what it means is that whatever pain or abuse or confusion you have been through, it will not have the last word. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, but nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything at all in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we hold to because of what Psalm 120 tells us and what Jesus shows us. That all sounds wonderful. Let me, let me put it in a very relatable frame. Sarah Condon is a mother. She's also a priest in the Anglican tradition. And last year, her parents both died in a car wreck. And she wrote an essay last month trying to reflect on the tragedy of losing both of her parents at the same time. Years ahead of them. And then gone. And, and I can relate to her in a lot of ways because she's a member of the clerical order. And so whenever tragedy befalls somebody that's in the clerical order, you feel this ultimate pressure to you know, kind of remind everybody that he's good while at the same time you're trying to remind each other, remind myself, he's good, right? And everybody would come to her like people naturally do and they'd just say, you know, God had nothing to do with that. He didn't do this to you. He was uninvolved in that. And she goes, it's, it's well-meaning, but it's not really a helpful form of thinking because if you say that God was uninvolved and his hands were tied, then what hope have we any that he will ever bring things to good? And so she says this. In the complicated and surprising work of grieving two beautiful lives, I can only trust that I am not alone. I can trust the words of others who have known sad and surprising loss. Comfort has been offered by the people who lost a toddler to drowning, or a mother to cancer, or an aunt, uncle, and cousins in a single car accident. And I know that when we huddle together in the darkness of our sorrow, we do not do it alone because God weeps with us, because God is graciously compassionate. In the darkest hours of grief, God has made his face to shine upon me. And I know this to be absolutely true. God knew this was coming. God has not been surprised. If God was not surprised, if God is true in all things, if Jesus rose from the dead, then even if God, we know, was able to act in a certain way and yet did not act in the way we would hoped and yet chose only to act elsewhere, then we still may sing with conviction and integrity 
that he is our keeper. How do you apply this? There's a Norman Rockwell painting that came out in 1953, and it's in front of a cathedral, probably in New York, and the priest and the sexton are putting up the title of that week's sermon. It's Lift Up Thine Eyes, and in front of everybody there in the steps, they're all looking down, and I guess if this was 2021, everybody looking at their smartphones, right? right. And Rockwell is out to say, look up. Look up. How? This might be a funny way of me trying to invite you to apply this text. Memorize it. Memorize it. Kids, if you memorize it, I will give you something you will enjoy if you come up and recite it to me. I know, that's not maybe the best incentive for doing it, but, you know, we'll go what we can do. Memorize it. And then let it, let it simmer. I don't think it can until you do. And then pray. You'll have to pray. You can't think yourself out of your despair. You're going to have to be very honest with him. I want to believe this. I know you're calling me to believe this. I'm having a really hard time believing this. Help me in my unbelief. I'll close with the words of some hymns that were written back during the time of John Newton from a city of Olney. And one of the lines went like this, His love in times past forbids me to think He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle, then He will perform with Christ in the vessel. Smile at the storm. His care is there. He is there. Help us, Father, to rest in it. Let's pray. Father, to whatever extent we might entertain the thought that this is good and true and necessary, would you build on it? Would you bless it? Would you help us to be a source of your goodness, your presence, your care to one another when others feel only in the dark and alone? Would you build this church to be that place of strength and courage, of compassion, of love and patience, of the ability to hear tears and angry words and not to be afraid. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord Jesus is the greatest example of care and love and kindness, and alongside of him are many mothers, and for them we give thanks this day. Go with this word of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Peace be with you.